I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Fatima Goss-Graves, the president and CEO of National Women's Law Center. We discuss the legacy of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, what that legacy meant for women, as well as a few of her most pivotal cases. We also discuss the process to replace Justice Ginsburg and how that process reflects our now struggling democracy. And lastly, we discuss some lessons of the past in relation to the Supreme Court and their impact to elections, specifically how the Bush v. Gore decision in determining the outcome of the 2000 election helped set the longer term course of the country. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Fatima Goss-Graves. Fatima Goss-Graves, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you on winning this year's John W. Gardner Leadership Award. That's that's huge. Uh, you know, thank you. It came as, to tell you the truth, it came as a huge surprise to me. And it was kind of a beautiful boost at a time where we could use it. So thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, we don't get a lot of opportunities to celebrate good things. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned that. Yeah. So how are you just feeling generally? I feel like, you know, we've been going from, you know, one kind of bruising experience to the next, right? You know, every day there's something new. And, you know, most recently we lost um, Justice Ginsburg. Yeah. So I have to tell you that at some point in time, and I don't know when that is, I will process how I'm really, really doing. But these days I am just geared up to fight. You know, we I I feel really disappointed that we didn't really get the time and space to truly honor Justice Ginsburg's legacy, to spend the time and space doing that over a period. But we are also facing a pretty existential threat around our democracy right now. And and that's where my attention has to focus. Yeah, I remember, you know, that Friday when she passed and kind of thinking the same thing, you know, we were, there were these two conversations going on, right? One about her legacy and what that meant for women and this country generally and for democracy. And, you know, what we're going to do about the crisis that you alluded to, right? I mean, the truth is, is that we have to do something in relation to this nomination and this process, which isn't really legitimate, right? And so we're kind of mourning and fighting at the same time, which is really hard. It is hard. You know, I like to think of it as in some ways we're fighting for her legacy and in her name. You know, she stood for justice and equality. She dreamed up a legal framework when the law had not yet recognized one and brilliantly advocated and led the Supreme Court to recognize the same. And even as recently as last term, she really did the work of reminding the court what was important. And so when when I think about how we have to galvanize over the next few weeks and how women in particular have to show up, you know, partly I think we'll be doing it in her honor, we'll be doing it as a tribute to her legacy. Right. And I think some of the energy that I felt that I felt over the past week is a lot of energy from women, kind of similarly to after the 2016 election. And again, in the 2018, during the 2018 midterms, when we had that historic win, you know, in Congress, I don't know, do you feel the same thing that like women are kind of energized to, to do something this election cycle? Do you feel that again? I do. I do. And I, I almost wonder if people aren't sensing it in the way that I'm sensing it. I am constantly getting calls and texts from women I know well and women I don't know very well asking, what can I do? 
And that to me is a sign that people are, you know, they have that, they're this knot in their stomach and a feeling like they need to come out, come out around this election, come out around the Supreme Court. And so I, I wonder if everyone is considering that in the understanding and predictions about what's going to happen this fall. One of the things I wanted to talk about was what her legacy means to you personally, what it means to a lot of a lot of women, especially in the, in the legal field yeah. and some of her most um, pivotal cases. I was thinking through those. Do you have any that kind of stick out to you as being, I guess, you know, more pivotal or, you know, being more impactful for women generally. Yeah, I mean, she is obviously just a giant, a giant in women's rights, a giant in the legal field generally, and uh, did that work at a time when it was unusual for women to even be lawyers at all, right? When women weren't allowed to be in law school, you know, the story around her being one of nine women when she was at Harvard and each of them sort of quizzed a bit about why they thought it was okay for them to take a man's seat. And to think about someone who started that framework and really uh, became the person who crafted what we understand as our ability to be equal under the law, um, it, it's pretty remarkable. Um, and and for women lawyers like me, I, you know, I'm the first lawyer in my family. And so all of, you know, who, what I thought you could be in terms of crafting a career through the law that is a justice career, it comes from understanding the likes of Justice Ginsburg and Justice Marshall and those who path the way. And so I, um, I I feel like we all owe a lot to her. I you know there are so many cases, so I many, mean, so many. I mean, you know, in some ways the big case is the case against Virginia Military Institute, right? Like that was the case that was about the integration of VMI, but also it was the case where she set out an additional framework for how it is we understand the sorts of rules and laws that are not permissible that either keep women in and confined to certain stereotypes or keep them totally out. Um, and so, you know, we go back to VMI again and again. I don't know how many times I've read that decision, but, you know, just last term in the contraception case against the Trump administration, in that case, it, it was sort of uh, wild to sort of read the majority opinion. This is a case about whether or not these employers have to provide um, a way for their employees to access contraception without a copay. So basically, the question at hand was whether or not their workers are going to have to pay more for their contraception or not. And you read the majority opinion, and it's like these workers... <laughs> don't exist at all. They don't talk about them at all. They don't talk about their hardship. They don't talk about the cost of contraception really and what it would mean. And so it's not until you get to Justice Ginsburg's dissent that you're introduced to the people who will truly be harmed by this rule. And I feel like that really says something about her approach 
to the law when she was on the court as well. Yeah. You know, um, there was one and I think it was, I don't know what year it was, maybe 2006, 2007. She was the only woman on the Supreme Court at the time. And it was regarding um, the federal ban on partial birth abortions. And I remember just, you know, reading her dissent. You know, she she made this comment about all pregnancies not being wanted, even pregnancies that are a product of a consensual activity. Right. And that was just so I mean, it was 2007, so it shouldn't seem so forward thinking, but it was. I mean, especially being surrounded by men. So the irony is that in 2007, there was a series of cases. And part of the backstory of 2007 that I think people forget is it was this short period of time where Justice Ginsburg was the only woman on the Supreme Court because Justice O'Connor had left in 2005 and we don't get Justice Sotomayor until 2009. So there's this window where it is only Justice Ginsburg. And again and again, on the issue of abortion, on the issue of equal pay, even in a case involving a strip search of a 13-year-old girl, Justice Ginsburg is the one who has to sort of painfully and slowly explain to her all-male colleagues uh, the experiences of women. And it is such a stark contrast to um, what like everyday people are dealing with. And it points out that you can't have an all male court and you can't have really an all white court and you can't have a court that does not actually reflect the diversity of this country, because then you end up having to have someone painfully spell out things that are basic to the people who are coming before it. Right. At the very least, it should be somewhat representative of the of the country, of the people that they're making these decisions for. Right. Um, you know, I think it's worth noting that the only two remaining women on the court today were you know, appointed by were nominated by Obama. Right. Um, it's, it's hard to it's hard to think about that. You know, we've we're actually in this weird situation where um, you have two justices who are now appointed by President Trump. And, you know, he has nominated a third. And so partly what you will have if they somehow race this nomination through in ways that are totally outrageous, you would have President Trump in a single term appointing a third of the court. And, you know, so we haven't seen actually anything like that in a very long time. Yeah, you know, and I haven't been talking a lot about his nominee. I've been trying to. It's hard, you know, because of where the conversation is going. But I haven't been talking about it because, in my opinion, I don't think that we need to go there until we talk about this process. Because the process itself is broken, right? The process is broken. So why are we discussing and debating the merits of the nominee when the nominee shouldn't have been put forth in the first place? I agree. And I actually think every time I've started there, uh, because people need to understand how outrageous this is, that it is the sort of hypocritical power grab that does not allow democracies to function effectively. The reason that the Supreme Court has the ability to be sort of the entity that sets forth what we understand as the law is because it has the understanding that it is independent and it is not supposed to be partisan and it doesn't sway uh, from term to term 
depending on uh, who is in office, that it really is guiding a pretty consistent understanding of what the rule of law is. That is embedded in our in in our notions around the Supreme Court. And to have a situation where it is so politicized, so blatantly uh, put out there in in this sort of power grabbing way, really risk destabilizing the Supreme Court itself, let alone the Senate's ability to function. And and when you add on top of that, it's not just that we're in the midst of an election where people are already voting to select a next president and a next Congress, but it is also a situation where we are mere weeks um, from when they are claiming they're going to take a vote on this nominee. And I, you know, I've been through nine uh, Supreme Court nominations in my work at the law center. And I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anything that would suggest you would take a nominee and try to race it through under this time frame, a time frame that doesn't allow you to have a deep examination of their record. And that doesn't allow the people to understand what is happening and engage in that process. The idea that the Senate would be doing anything close to advice and consent in that framework is, is really, really off. Right. And I think there's something deliberate about shifting the conversation to the nominee, which to me, I don't find those conversations very interesting because, of course, he's going to nominate someone who is, you know, the complete opposite of Ginsburg. Like, of course, you know, I mean, that's a given. that's not what people want. It's sort of interesting because when people are polled about this, they have the sense that the court should be the stable thing. So they they aren't interested in one justice being who is sort of radical replacing another or having the sorts of huge swings that that this nomination um, would mean and at what what people actually hope for in the Supreme Court is that it is this consistent thing and that they can that they can understand that our notions of fairness sort of depend on an ability to understand that the rule of law is something that you can count on and for it to shift wildly. Uh, depending on the political winds, is a real problem. It's even more of a problem when you have this backdrop of the president suggesting that we have to race to fill the seat so that it can influence the outcome of the election and the outcome of the healthcare case that's going to be before the court. Which he said aloud, right? Like, right. He said the quiet part aloud. You know, like sometimes you're like, I bet you that's what he's thinking. You don't have to guess here because he said it aloud. Right. And it's just like, I mean, I don't even have a question there or a comment. It's just like he just said it aloud. He's like, yes, I, you know, I want this person so they can influence the outcome of the election. It's like, come on. We're like, where, where am I? So it is not at all where we should be as a country. It's not at all where we should be 
for those of us who care about equality and justice and reproductive freedom, it's a pretty scary setup. But also, if you have a if if you're someone who I don't know, you might not wake up every day thinking about our democracy. Um, but actually, I think probably more people are. More people are thinking about our democracy, and I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. It's because they're worried it is so fragile, uh, and and that we need to be looking out for it. So I believe people will look out for our democracy. That's a really good point. I, I, I didn't know where you were going there, but that makes sense. In a functioning democracy, you should not have to worry about it. The average person, the average constituent should not wake up thinking about the fragility of the democracy, right? No, you it should, should just be, be invisible. It should be a thing you can count on. Um, maybe you want to participate in it, right? By by speaking up under our First Amendment and, you know, by voting or electing office or people to office or even running for office yourself, you usually don't have to think about in a democracy that works whether or not the core institutions are going to function as they should. And that's what's on the table. Yeah. Okay. so this is the last thing I'll say about this nomination. Well, I'll probably say more, but in relation to her being nominated is that I I think that there is a deliberate, you know, distraction going on in talking about the nominee, because then people won't think about the fact that, like you said, we have like four or five weeks left, you know, before the election. The fact that people are already voting. And I was listening to some interview the other day. I was conservative talking about. The person who was interviewing him was asking, you know, we've never done this before. This is unprecedented. No one's been confirmed this close to an election. And the person that they were interviewing said, well, you know, someone's been confirmed before in 16 days. And I think that there's kind of a deliberate muddying of the waters. Yeah, listen, I, I think that they're trying to do two things. I think they're trying to demonstrate that this is a business as usual process rather than a first time in history strategy that is destabilizing this country, right? And I I, I just think if they go through with this power grab and are somehow successful, we have to name it for what it is. There has never been a confirmation of someone to the Supreme Court this close to an election. In fact, you know, the the very it, it actually has been unusual that someone has passed away in an election year. That hasn't happened very many times. And when it happened this close to an election, they made the very smart determination to wait until the after the election to move forward. And and so there's a lesson there. And there is also a lesson in how long it typically takes to actually thoroughly and properly vet a nominee. It is highly unusual, even in times where people have been able to move fast, doing it in what is effectively a month or a month plus a week is not a reasonable idea. That is not enough time to thoroughly look at this nominee's record. It just isn't. Yeah. And one other comment about Ginsburg and, and how she relates to this. I know she, you know, dissented during the Bush v. Gore, which is a we lesson did. we obviously haven't learned yet. I mean, the Supreme Court is very influential in, in election outcomes. And that one, I think what happened in the Supreme Court is that they ruled that Bush had an, an emergency injunction to stop the recount in Florida. And I think the Supreme Court upheld that. They did. So and I, you know, I remember living that 
Yeah, you're very well in 2000. And and I actually think we have to go into this election understanding, especially because of the many people who are voting by mail, that that election night, we won't have the results likely, right? You're not going to necessarily know. And the Trump administration has already said that its strategy, its hope is to stop counting votes, to get people to stop counting and um, doing that in states that are closed. So they've already um, outlined that that will be their strategy, both in Florida and Pennsylvania. In 2000, that is what happened. They both had a debate over which types of ballots were counted, but they also were able to get them to stop counting votes. And the thing is, no matter where you fall on uh, the sort of spectrum of politics, the basic notion that people should have their vote counted is a pretty important one. And and we will not be better off, again, as a democracy, if we're in the business of not allowing people's voices to be heard. And that's that's a risk that we're that we're facing this year. Yeah. You know, I I I, I do get frustrated with the fact that that. I remember living through that. So it wasn't like it was decades and decades ago, like it's within my my adult lifetime. And that people, a lot of people, not enough people in my opinion, don't realize that this did not start. Like this level of kind of breaking down our democracy in relation to elections did not start with Trump. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was a big one that just kind of, you know, I remember being really sad and kind of depressed about that. And just kind of being dismayed, you know, years later thinking like, why did we not talk about that more? Because that was huge. You know, there's there's no question about it. I actually think we should have been continuously telling the story of what happened in 2000. I mean, the court was really tainted at that point. It felt political in a new way. The idea that that basically by a single vote on the Supreme Court. It determined who our next president was because they stopped counting the votes. It, it really was a thing that hung over our country deeply. Now we're in a sort of a new situation, though, I just have to say, where um, from the beginning over the last year, this president has been talking about hoaxes and shams and denigrating voting in this country. And part of that is an overall strategy to make people believe that their vote doesn't count, that their voice doesn't count, that there's nothing that they can do. And I think it's up to all of us to reground ourselves and remind, actually, even if they say it's not true, your voice and your vote does count. You, you yourself are important. And to, to fight back against what I see as you know, yet another form of voter suppression. But what do you think are our possibilities in relation to, you know, kind of forcing this process back to it being legitimate again? Like what kind of maneuvers, legal maneuvers can we can we employ? I don't know. (laughs) Well, I mean, the first thing to just remind people is that not a single vote has been taken, not in committee not in the full Senate. And so I know you keep hearing from President Trump, from Mitch McConnell, that it is a done deal. It's not a done deal at this point. She is not on the Supreme Court and they have not 
fully committed in my view to ruining our democracy in this way. So it's not over. And they need to hear from people. They need to hear from people that they are outraged by the idea that they would engage in this ridiculous power grab. They need to hear from people that it is not what they want. And people need to vote. They need to vote their heart on this. You know, I I actually think when you see this sort of blatant power grab in this way, the thing that will grab the most attention is having people at the ballot box also say, I disagree. Or as we've been saying at the National Women's Law Center, having people say, I dissent. <laughs> so, okay. So, well, one of the things that I've seen floated, and I don't know how feasible this is or whether it makes sense, you know, I'm not an attorney, so I have to ask you the expert. Um an expansion, I'm thinking long term, you know, past the November election, an expansion of the Supreme Court. Is that a way to rebalance things and get things back in order? Well, you know, I'm sort of trying to take one fight at a time. Um, certainly this process is raising a real need for us to look seriously at court reforms. And there's a range of ideas that are out there. But I have been super and laser focused on this next less than 40 days on stopping this ridiculous process and on gearing people up to vote. Somehow I knew you'd say that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a deliberate person. (laughs) I'm not going to get you there. Well, I do want to ask you what you think about Biden's commitment to appoint a black woman. He did say that, right? I mean, he's, he did. <laughs> I remember and I bookmarked actually, it. Yeah, no, he did. And actually, once he appointed, he named Kamala Harris as his VP. I saw some people saying, um, wait, is he also doing the Supreme Court? And he he said both. And so um, I've actually been really I, I'm glad that he did that in part because it has allowed people to remind ourselves of the rich and talented and deep bench of Black women attorneys in this country, um, you know, you could be putting together binders of them. <laughs> I'm sure uh, there are so many to, to choose from in academia, in private practice, already as sitting judges on federal and state courts, um, leading national social justice organizations, there are amazing, brilliant Black women in this country, and making them and their work visible is an, is a really great thing. You know, thinking about it, thinking about the fact that a Black woman has never been nominated, um, you know, I mean, obviously there isn't one on the Supreme Court right now, but mm-hmm. not even been nominated, right? And I just thought about that, just, you know, intellectually, it just seems kind of... I don't know, unfathomable. I'd never thought about it before. It's like, of course, of course, it should be a black woman on the Supreme Court, right? Given everything that's happening in this country. um, Yes. Well, and I think about the many black, I mean, the many, many black women right now, but the many who came before us who could have also been on the Supreme Court, people like Elaine Jones, who led the NAACP Legal Defense Fund for many years, Um, people uh, like Marion Wright Edelman, who led the Children's Defense Fund, like these were groundbreaking um, legal giants, right? Whose footsteps many of us follow in. 
And and so the idea that you are right, that we've never had a black woman named for the Supreme Court, that's absurd. And so I'm glad that that commitment has been made. I hope we see it. Yeah. Well, um, I, maybe you'll agree with me on this. I think to honor Justice Ginsburg's legacy, the thing that people can do is to be actively engaged and to vote this November. To vote like they've not, and, and to keep voting, not just this yeah. November, but to keep voting up and down the ballot. I hope people remember this year as the year they were reminded elections matter and that they vote up and down ballots and that they vote every single time. And that they understand that the the least we can all do is to show up and participate in our democracy this way. It's worth fighting for. Well, Fatima Goss-Graves, thank you so much for joining me. I, I really love our conversations and congratulations again. And thank you for taking time to talk to me today. It's been good to be with you.